I know we're going to do a separate episode about anti-science rhetoric in the church. And I know we've talked a little bit in previous episodes about pandemic response. So do we want to talk about what's going on and our frustrations with all of it without making it an entire other episode? (laughs) How do I abbreviate this? Right. It's all I really have. I mean, my biggest real complaint is just that I'm not even mad at the CDC because they've proven that because we're in a pandemic that we haven't experienced before, they're just kind of making it up as we go along. I am more angry at the common day, all of us, you know, everyday people who just refuse to exercise any kind of common sense because I've just kind of accepted that actually most people don't have it anymore. And so just the willingness to try to take back life as it once was and making this even worse because we're just unwilling to just sit down, those who can. I'm not talking about people that are being required to go to work every day. They're just doing what they have to do. But you don't have to go to concerts. You don't have to go to movies. You don't have to do whatever it is these people are doing in bars. You don't have to do what you're doing in church. You don't just stay the fuck home. Yeah. And so that we're just willing to just continue. I mean, you know, that we are now surpassing numbers from the height of the pandemic last year. I don't even know what else to say because clearly (laughs) I'm going to be staying home. You get stupid. I'm going to stay home and stay out of y'all's way. I do want to blame the CDC, though. (laughs) And figure well, out how to course. do it in a way that, like, doesn't get our show completely taken off. Well, that's, because, yeah. yeah, as soon as you start saying anything that might counter recommendations, then it's just like, you're spreading misinformation. But, no. Like, They're there spreading was, misinformation. There was, a, there was a clear months of, er, you know, early on, but, like, mm, don't wear masks. You know, that, that would be oh, worse because you, you don't know how to wear them or you don't know how to wear the right ones. So just don't wear them at all. And that was like really early on. Bad. Then the messaging changed and it was, well, wear a mask, but don't use up all the PPE because we don't have any for like yep. actual healthcare workers and frontline staff. Yep. So like, let's just start sewing shit together, just bullshit masks for everybody to wear. And again, people still weren't wearing, wearing those right. No. Nope. <laughs> There was all this like talk about wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, because it was all about surfaces. And then it became, oh, it'll spread by droplets. And now, like, we still aren't really talking about the fact that it spread, like, it's airborne, it's spread by aerosols. We're kind of moving it in that direction because now they're saying, like, we really need to be using, like, the N95 masks. But, like, at that point, at this point, two and and a half, three, yeah, almost three years into this pandemic, like, First off, the people that were barely listening aren't listening anymore. Done. And they're doing no work. It's it's so fascinating to me the level of effort that gets put into spreading messages they really feel are important. And I just feel like across the board, everything about this pandemic and what to do and how to address it. It's like, yeah, I see a couple <laughs> passing things on Twitter, but I know most people in the world 
aren't seeing it and aren't caring. No. And all the wrong people are all paranoid about all the wrong things. And so, meanwhile, you know, progressives are just continuing to swallow it and go along with the party line and And getting sick. Those are the main people I see because maybe that's my who I follow and who I watch and all that. They're the main ones getting sick. Yeah. So, and, okay, can we also just say, the vaccine does not prevent you from getting COVID. The vaccine is just another mask. Yeah. It's just to help you to not die when you get it. So stop saying, I don't know how I got it. I've vaxxed and boosted. Don't know how, huh? Especially when we did continually say over and over again we're probably not going to reach herd immunity if we can't <laughs> pass like 80 percent 90 percent still not vaccines there. yeah yeah we're I never going to get there but you know all of the talk about the economy i can't do oh that. yeah can't. keeping the economy going and we're not going to shut down and we're not going to do anything offer any aid offer any help that whole like Frontline workers, y'all are our heroes thing. Like, that came and ended in, like, a month. And now we totally don't give a shit about the people that do have to be out in the world all day, every day. Yeah. Interact with people all day, every day. And come in contact with this virus. Because we're also not doing mass mandates. Yep. <laughs> we're not, yep. you know. Refuse to do vaccine mandates. Refuse to do vaccine mandates. I had a conversation with someone last week and they said, you know, they're vaxxed and boosted and blah, blah, blah. But they said, you know, but I'm not, you know, I really have a hard time with the vaccine mandates because, you know, you're telling someone what to do. And I said, well, you're actually telling them what they can't do to me. Right. There's just no cognizance of the fact that this is a public health issue. Like the choices you make affect everyone you come into contact with because it's coming out of your nose it's coming out of your mouth you're leaving traces of it when you touch things remember (laughs) when they wanted to prosecute people who transferred hiv right remember when they wanted to do that and did do that right so you can't have it both ways and i'm not saying it needs to be criminalized you probably are about there at this point (laughs) but Could we have some acknowledgement and recognize that those decisions, but they don't even think it's real. I mean, it's just, there's just across the board, there's just like a thousand different realities everyone else is living in. And I, I cannot comprehend it. Like, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I, just, I just can't. It's, 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 it's just, it's tough figuring out if A, I even have the energy and B, if it's even worth trying to convince the few people in our sphere oh no i've stopped the i i i have i'm like i'm not yelling into the ether on twitter or whatever i'm I'm gonna you know i'm gonna like i did a i did do a little rant like just voicing my frustration but not because like i was trying to convince anybody of anything or need people to believe anything but just to you know get some annoyances out of my but yeah in terms of like actually trying to convince like the friends and family that we have that we know either aren't vaccinated or just aren't sitting down or trying to figure out how to make better decisions for themselves. And then they're getting it or they're spreading it. And it's just, no, I've stopped. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't, I, 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 yeah, I can't. It's moved me into, 
I've already pretty much been in sackcloth and ashes this entire pandemic because, again, I always say end time movies prepared me for this. Yeah. But the, seeing people that I love um, who just refuse to think. Yeah. Want to be told what to think and for whatever reason always follow the people saying the dumbest shit yeah they yeah and it's so what it's also really said to me is that when you are a thoughtful person in those people's lives they will like pat you on the hand and listen and then go on and do whatever it is they're gonna do and so i've it's also made me really realize like none of us hold the kind of influence in other people's lives that we think we do yeah and so I've like I'm done. Yeah. So like I've I'm now I'm like limiting my phone time. I'm limiting my texting time. I'm limiting my time on social media because I'm reclaiming all of the energy that I was investing. Yeah. In others who don't give a shit what I have to say. Yeah. And using that for me. Yeah. Because I can't incredibly freeing. I can't. I just can't even entertain like. But if they really do believe the vaccine might have something horrible in it, like I just, I can't I can't even let myself go there and try to empathize with that mentality. I just can't. Like I've got nothing. Because COVID has something much better. <laughs> so go get it. Oh, renegade through and through. Oh, renegade through and through. Oh, Lord, if you only knew. Tell me what do I do And if what I say is true How could I get through to you I don't know how to behave I don't know how to behave And if I don't change my way It might send me to my grave But if what I say is bad Welcome to Outlaws Evidence of the Unseen, exceptional stories and conversations that weave history, religion, arts, and politics into the fabric of our greater cultural narrative. I am Ray Curenton, singer, songwriter, producer. I'm Tim Dillinger, music historian, essayist, sometimes singer. Uh, and if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and tell everyone you know to tune in as well. And if you feel so inclined, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people find us. And today, uh, this is very likely going to be a two-part episode. Um, we're talking about, I know in the last episode, we talked about praise and worship music. And thank you for to all of the people who <laughs> were in agreement with us <laughs> around a lot of the things that we said in that episode. And we wanted to really dig into the Jesus music movement. Um, a film recently came out last year called The Jesus Music. And we wanted to do an episode about the show. We wanted to see the, the, the movie first, but of course it was in theaters only and we weren't going to we're theaters. So that. We, yeah, had to wait for it to be on demand to see it. We wanted to, to dig into that, that film and... Um, talk about what we liked about it and what we didn't like about it and I guess kind of round the story out you know tell the pieces of the story that we feel we're missing from that 
And, you know, we knew going in, we actually thought going in that Andre Crouch was not going to be talked about at all. And we were, I was surprised that he was kind of talked about. Mm Mm-hmm. But still, you know, we we were preparing the show in mind, thinking that, you know, we really wanted to focus on him as a real focus of the conversation. And having now watched the movie, we definitely need to dig into his story a lot more, (laughs) a lot more, because it's just it's such a bigger story. Yeah. And so I think we've got two pieces here. One is just, you know, reviewing the film, talking about the, the Jesus music story, the Jesus people and the music. And then, yeah, just really doing a a full retrospective on Andre Crouch and his music and his life. I, I, that was a lot of setup. What you got over there? <laughs> well, the, for people that don't have any idea what we're talking about, there's always you know that piece that yes. we have to do because uh, Jesus music, the documentary is allegedly the story of the formation of contemporary Christian music which began in the early um, 70s, mm-hmm. um, really late 60s, but took form in the early 70s. And the the point of the film really is to try to make some connection between what it was and what it is today. Yes. And so that's the, the arc of the story. And yeah. so in that... Um, and I don't know who the brothers are. I, be- I think they're brothers, Andrew and John Irwin directed this film i have no idea they're here they're here in nashville Mm -hmm. i don't know what political bend they have on this it does appear to have been a collaboration in part at least with the gospel music association capital christian music yes um so no just going in there's a certain amount of um gatekeeping yes that goes into that story and agenda making about saying you know, this is the start of the music and pick up the latest CCM project right. today. That's you right. know, like and somehow felt, there's a through line. It yeah. felt <laughs> in many ways, particularly once it kicks that the second half of the film, they'd give you a, a, an hour or so of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it like leaps because there's an entire era. They basically once it hits like 88, mm-hmm. they kind of clip and take you into the 2000s pretty quickly. So you yeah. miss an entire era. Well, it, honestly, it's it truly is too much story. And I know like so many things are bloated with the miniseries and things. Some stories really can just be a movie. But this story, if you were really going to tell it right and really talk to all of the, the, the vastly different artists that make up Christian music, contemporary Christian music. Yeah, this needed to be a multi-part docu-series the well, ken burns you know yes. type you know invested deal well and had it and so let me say this too because there's a they they did it's hard for me to say they did a great job giving the history because they gave a very abbreviated and selective history yeah um but they did better than i thought they would do <laughs> yes and so yes uh and we'll get into that in a minute but the the problem becomes for me that when it leaps, when they start talking to the more current artists, mm-hmm. none of them are really talking about the old music. Right. They were all talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there really was no connection between the, the ultimately three generations they were trying to give us. 
they didn't seem to have any interest or connection to what it was. Yeah. The new people are just very invested in what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that felt like it to me that made the agenda of the film a lot more apparent because Mm -hmm. those people were just there to talk about themselves or at least that's what they showed us yes and so i also want to say like we do not know the full extent of the interviews that were done um we don't know who they interviewed that didn't make the film other than like we got this whole glimmer of people in the beginning of the film like we got these thumbnail clips of people that we never saw again right and so there's also that so you know you but clearly, there was an agenda to end with the new music. That yes. was the whole point of this movie from the beginning. And so to like, only include what they did include yes. of the people that they talked to. So let's talk about, which we briefly touched on in the last episode, mm-hmm. let's talk about the beginnings of contemporary Christian music and what they did give us in the documentary. Yes, so, yes. Um, they did talk about the... Barely. <laughs> Talked about, you know, setting up the 60s, the political climate of the 60s, the, you know, touch on the hippie movement. But really, I mean, they really didn't dig into, like, well, and, and I guess that's even loaded, too. Like, you know, there were the, 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 the peace hippies, but there were also the ones that really were just about counterculture, drugs, just... Free love. Yeah, free kind of love. Yeah. And so... Th- there were, there were multiple things happening on. There was so much talk about the drugs. Well, and let me say this, too. They, this is the other piece that really bothered me. I was surprised and thrilled that they included one of the people who talked about the 60s and talked about the 60s most coherently and politically yeah. was Glenn Kaiser. Yeah. Glenn Kaiser uh, was the co-founder of the Resurrection Band, the really first Christian hard rock band. And he and his wife, Wendy are um, a part of the helm of Jesus People USA in Chicago, which is a Christian left organization. So I thought it was really interesting how that's basically one of the big pieces they used of him. And so it gives this appearance of progressivism yeah. at the at the as a um, as if that is the majority or was the majority mm-hmm. of what people were. Yeah. And and I think that's deceptive because I think that's certainly who they have always been. Jesus mm-hmm. People USA, Glenn Kaiser and Wendy and the Resurrection Band. They were very much at the, the vanguard of, um, hey, let's talk about apartheid in South Africa. Hey, let's talk about racial disparities in America. Hey, let's, you know, they were those people mm-hmm. always. And so that they, that Glenn's interview kind of gets used to pivot CCM as being more progressive than it actually was, was a little gross to me. So not his fault. That's how his clip was used. Um, So he really, you know, to me, he was the main person who gave the setup for that. We also, Greg Lowry is the other person that they utilized to talk about the formation of the Jesus movement. And Greg Lowry was uh, under the tutelage of Lonnie Frisbee, but he was a major Trump supporter. (laughs) Actually, one of the people who got COVID at the White House event back in um, 2020. (laughs) Goody, goody gumdrops. (laughs) And was, you know, really a problem through that entire administration. And so... That he has such a central role in this film was also problematic to me because, it, it, to me, it made me wonder, okay, 
so if we're pivoting this as being a group of seemingly progressive people, mm-hmm. and that's not anything that gets blatantly said, no. but it is suggested. Yeah. What happened to you? Like right. And so you know they also though very much centralize the development of the Jesus movement uh, on the West Coast. Yes, yes. And so that's the, where Calvary Chapel and Bonnie Frisbee, who yes. you just mentioned, come into play. You want to talk about who Lonnie was? Yes, Lonnie Frisbee was a um, hippie who found Jesus independent of all of this. Really, I read his book uh, in, as we were preparing for this episode, and. There's also a documentary on Lonnie Frisbee that I would suggest watching um, carefully. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Watch it carefully. And Lonnie was a charismatic figure. He was the, I'm going to say this the right way. He was the youthful person who got, in my opinion, used by Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel establishment to rebuild his church with young people. And he brought them in in the droves. I mean, he was like, he he looked like what white people back then thought Jesus looked like. And they totally banked on his charisma, his looks, his charm, his magnetism, you know, to draw people in. And, it, and he showed these older people, in a sense, how to accept people. What they don't tell you in the Jesus music film is that Lonnie apparently, finger quotes, struggled uh, with homosexuality and was a casualty of the AIDS epidemic Mm -hmm. uh, in the 90s. That all gets wiped away Mm -hmm. in the film. That doesn't get mentioned. He gets mentioned as this central figure, but it's like he gets mythologized. Yeah. And I also see, on the other hand... There's a lot of rhetoric because of the documentary and the the story that Lonnie was a gay man who, you know, founded the, who started the Jesus movement. That's the, he's like yeah. been Rosetta Tharped in that way, you know, it's like, <laughs> and I have a real problem with dead gaying people. Yeah. Because... I've read his book. I mean, it doesn't seem to me he ever was at peace with his sexuality. I think he was a man who had same-sex attractions, who died of the AIDS epidemic, died in the AIDS epidemic, but that wasn't how he identified. And for as much language as we have around attraction and identities now, I would think we could do better than to say he was a gay man who started the Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. I think he was someone who had sex with men who... And wasn't happy about it. And wasn't happy about it. And... And to our knowledge, never never became happy about it. And so I, you know, and that's not to say anything because we are definitely not proponents for the ex-gay movement. So that's not what (laughs) I'm saying. Check that episode out. Yeah. Yeah. But I am saying that I don't like these mythologies that get created in the wake of people's deaths. So I don't like how he was represented in the film because I feel like it's erasure Mm -hmm. in many ways. And I also don't like how he's represented by the gay Christian movement at all. Um, But he did make the film. Yeah. So I was shocked because I expected him to be completely left out. Yeah. Um, But through what Lonnie and, and Chuck Smith um, created um, 
they were inviting and allowing musicians to sing and play these new songs they were writing. And they were very much, you know, in the folk vein, largely. A lot of the, they were early praise songs at the time, but they were also thoughtful songwriters that were writing introspective songs about what their faith was meaning to them. Uh, Love Song is really positioned centrally in the film. Mm -hmm. Great group. Um, That Welcome Back just gets me every time. Just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. And Maranatha, which was the label that um, Calvary Chapel um, established, released the Everlasting Living Jesus Music Concert. Mouthful. Mouthful. (laughs) Um, Which was a really big album in the sense that it brought... You know, I think 12 different groups mm-hmm. out for the first time. And it was gorgeous. gorgeous. I mean, it's folk music. You know, it's it's that 60s pop, that, that mid-60s to early 70s sound that, you know, was just the sound of pop music, but with, with evangelical lyrics. Well, and I listened to it again last night. It was the first time I'd listened to it in a lot of years. Mm-hmm. There's just this simplicity to it this night. And we'll never have that again no. because people just come out of the womb like way too jaded now. <laughs> but you hear this like wide-eyed wonder in these songs and you can understand how people got really swept up into this, particularly if they were seekers and they were spiritually curious and a little burnt out from whatever had been happening for them in the 60s. You can see how this would be a seemingly safe, finger quote, escape for them. Yeah, yeah. I know you said when we were watching it and talking about it, I think, initially after the movie, but yeah, to hear Michael W. Smith in particular say that this album changed his life, and this (laughs) is the album that made him want to make music, and then to hear the album for the first time, because I hadn't heard it until after we watched this movie, I just went, how did you get what you do from (laughs) what that was? That's interesting. And he makes, I mean, production, like arrangement-wise, gorgeous music and so maybe that's what he but just in terms of style and in terms of artistic approach to faith-based composition i just yeah i it's hard for me to make that connection (laughs) yes and michael was i think the the one person in the film that really directly talked about this album being a big deal for him yeah and then of course they bring up a lot of the other groups that were a big thing during that era and by rays i just mean like they say their names yeah we get names and we don't get a ton of backstory or or interviews from most of them phil Kagi, sweet comfort band we you know we did get res band resurrection band uh keith green they talked they did they spent a little bit more time talking about keith green they who did. has passed who, yes passed in 1982 Second chapter of Acts, they interviewed Matthew Ward for the documentary. But, but he got like a maybe, glimmer. Yeah. Which also shocks me because they were a super group yeah. during that time. They were like, they were huge. I mean, like ABBA, you know, like that kind of popularity. Like mm-hmm. they were really popular. And then, uh, of course, Larry Norman, who they cite as the father of Christian rock. Yeah. So I want to say something. So Larry Norman is, oh, there's also a documentary on Larry Norman that I would suggest watching very carefully. I believe the same filmmaker that made the Lonnie Frisbee documentary. And at the same also me. 
quality. <laughs> same production value. Yeah. So, yeah, I think well, it was possibly the same people. Watch it very carefully. I would re- actually suggest for Larry Norman reading Greg uh, Thornberry's book on Larry Norman. Spectacular book on Larry Norman. And we'll um, put these books and these films in the episode notes. Yes. For everybody. Um, Larry Norman, they go out of their way to let us know he was a little off-center. That's really the point of bringing Larry Norman up is, yes, he was an original. Yes, he was. They really actually, did they give him credit in this film for being like the driving force? Did they do that? If they did, I don't remember it. I mean, I didn't get the impression they did. So yeah. if somebody wants to watch it again. and <laughs> I got Father of Christian Rock. Yeah. You know, that I got. But the other thing I also really want to say about... Even positioning Larry Norman that way, which is in many ways very true. In 1969, Larry Norman recorded an album called Upon This Rock. And it is cited by many as the first contemporary Christian album. But I would argue it goes a little further back than that. Um, I mean, I would actually suggest looking at Mylon Lefevre. Uh, Mylon cut a record the same year with his band Mylon. And... um, that album also used to share credit back when I was coming up upon this rock and Mylan shared credit for being the first CCM albums. Um, and that didn't happen in this film at all. No. There was no mention of Mylan Lefevre, which shocked me because Mylan had ultimately became another huge artist in the eighties again in CCM. Yeah. Uh, and so that Mylan didn't even get a mention was strange. Yeah. But Larry's uh, Only Visiting This Planet, Larry Norman's Only Visiting This Planet, was a really 1972 major, a major, major deal. Uh, And he wrote just all the things Christians did not want to hear about the world and themselves. He was, to me, an incredibly empathic writer. And so he wrote about, you know, drugs and uh, sex and racism and always credited the source of rock and roll as coming from black music. And and rock and roll is coming from the church. And that made him very unpopular. <laughs> um, so Larry, to me, got many, many things right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also not willing to kowtow to what they saw as the authority. Yeah. And that's why I love him. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, why should I? Why should I? Um, so they they also centralize in this film an event in 1972 called Explo 72, posited by many as the Christian Woodstock. Um, it was a, to me, many people see it as the height. I see it as like the beginning of the end mm-hmm. uh, because it was the union of the Jesus people with the Christian fathers. Yeah, And I see this as a really dangerous event. Um, for all of its beauty. So Andre Crouch and the Disciples, um, Children of the Day, Reba Rambo, uh, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Rita Coolidge. Like it was also a union of the sacred and the secular yeah. because these secular artists were coming to talk about their faith and sing about their faith as well. It was huge. Yeah. So it was in Dallas, Seven Hours. Yes. Campus Crusade, Billy Graham. Yep. <laughs> And there's a great book about it, God's Forever Family, Larry Eskridge. One of the things that he presents in that book that I think is really important is that there were booths there from Christians who were against the Vietnam War. And again, I'm not saying that to say these were the majority, right? but I am saying that they were present. Mm-hmm. Um, All of these things were happening 
yes. that one event. Yeah. Yes. And there's some interesting films. I after, As we were preparing for this, I also went on YouTube and was looking at some documentaries about the Jesus movement that were actually filmed in real time. And all of the rhetoric has been there from the beginning that we hear today in a very different language. Mm -hmm. So when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not suggesting at all that it was utopia or Mecca, Mm -hmm. but I am saying that as I was watching these documentaries, I was struck by the fact that they were able to have room for people who held different views with a little more uh, openness than we see today. There was one documentary that actually showed people from different faiths and political views at one event, including the Church of Satan. (laughs) Um, And everyone had three minutes to get up and speak their piece. Mm. And I just thought that would never happen today. No. That would never, ever happen. It would never even be. They've weeded all the people out that might think differently at this point. And And I think they were going through the weeding process through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yes. Yes. And so to bring it back to the film, Mm -hmm. none of that gets represented. Like none of that really gets said. Uh, We jump, though, in this in Jesus, the Jesus music documentary from that. That event. Yeah. Into full speed ahead. 80s CCM (laughs) as a multi-million dollar enterprise. Yeah. Which, how? (laughs) Like, how do you (laughs) leave out the whole rest of the 70s? And again, I get that they were crunched for time. I think the movie's only like an hour and 40 minutes. But, yeah, I feel like you cannot talk about the 80s without talking about because up up to that point like we're getting music that was clearly commercially viable for its time yeah always it always sounded like what mainstream music was doing just set to christian lyrics yes and so i don't know how you skip over the disco era and how that would inform what artists were doing the production values la and what was happening then there, you know, like all of those things, how that might inform the music and create, continue to build the audiences from Explo onto, you know, how things got really, really big mid 80s, you know, without, you know, talking about those stepping stones and those stepping blocks and what was happening in terms of production and studio musicians. And, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of history there. That if you're just thinking about what was happening in music, must have been happening in the Christian world for it to get as big as it got in the 80s. Well, and there was always, always from the time that the Christian labels really formed and became corporations, there was always an attempt to get the music on secular radio. Hmm. Always. And so even as far back as the late 70s, people like the Imperials, Reba Rambo, I named those two in particular because they were getting airplay and attention in secular outlets. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to me that that doesn't get talked about. It makes it sound like the documentary makes it sound like contemporary Christian music was a self-sustaining model built for and by Christians. And that really isn't the point because clearly if you've got in the eighties, it's a, you know, millions and millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and today it's what it is. Mm-hmm. 
clearly there's a different relationship, <laughs> if that's what it was, between yeah. how Christians back then wanted music versus today. And But the reality is it wasn't just Christians. And there's articles. All they have to do is go and read some of the billboards from the 80s and, it, and CCM from the 80s music line, their industry periodical. Like, they give succinct numbers about the percentage of people who identified as Christians that were buying music. And it was slim. Yeah. And it was always about also how do we get more Christians to know about contemporary Christian music? Because the majority of people who identified as Christians had no idea what it was. Mm. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we also get, as they're moving into this period, we get Amy Grant introduced kind of as they're dealing with the 70s. And that's accurate. Her first album was in 77. Mm -hmm. But we get Amy Grant as like the first woman. Yeah. <laughs> like she's introduced at the expense yes. of all of the other women that they did not mention who came before her. Yes. Honey Tree. Honey Tree in particular. Uh, well, I'm going to say it again. Reba Rambo because it was basically Evie. Reba Rambo and uh, Honey Tree. I mean, yeah. those were, Pam Mark Hall. I mean, these were like major first women in CCM. And the passing mention of Sandy Patty passing. was honestly insulting. It was insulting because it was actually shady. <laughs> yeah. That comment yeah. that they raised her in. Yeah. It was a comparison, which is like, of course, like all the other men, you talk about them and the unique things that they bring. And the only time you mention Sandy Patty is to say Amy wasn't Sandy Patty. And yeah. so that's why Amy was bigger because she wasn't, you know, this big Liza Minnelli presence on stage. She had this docile thing yes. that made her more palatable to the men. It's just so gross. Well, and let me so... say this because I want to be really clear. I love Amy Grant. Yeah. I, I have written about Amy Grant. I adore Amy Grant. Her music was pivotal for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I say all of this, it is not out of any disrespect to Amy Grant. I am a huge fan. But what they didn't handle, and I guess it's what Christian music has never really handled, are women who are great at what they do as vocalists. They don't know what to do with women who are in complete regard of the voice. I mean, they even joke about Amy feeling, she said, I'm not the best singer in the world, mm -hmm. like in the documentary. Yeah. And so I juxtapose an Amy with a Cynthia Clausen, with a Reba Rambo, with um, an Evie, you know, and again, Evie, Sandy, and those women, they were adult contemporary. But somebody like a Reba, somebody like a Honey Tree, were more progressive mm -hmm. in their music, but they weren't folk. Right. And so this is the other thing. They're also like trying to build this monolithic sound, I guess, to make, to, to make Amy that woman. Because, yeah. But I don't really get why you wouldn't mention Honey Tree. Or I also have to say Children of the Day, mm -hmm. uh, headed by Marsha Stevens Pino, one of the Calvary Chapel groups. Today, Marsha is like huge Christian lesbian activist and has been since the 80s and her song for those tears i died was central part of the jesus movement mm -hmm. not a mention yeah so well, there's all yeah. these women that to me developed things prior to amy and amy really was able to come in because of the legwork um 
to, I mean, I, I always, the trial and error, <laughs> the trial and error, but Reba Rambo in particular was the one who had the crossover buzz. Mm-hmm. She was the one that they thought, okay, she can go all the way. Mm-hmm. And Amy was able to do what she did in the eighties really because of the work that Reba did mm-hmm. up to that point. And so it bothered me yeah. that this was so condensed and so, um, narrow, mm-hmm. In even the mentions of people. I'm not saying they had to sit down and have intensive conversations, but I am saying, could you mention them? And it's not even like we're saying there just weren't enough women. Like, you had to include some women because they were making music, too, and, you know, you can't leave out women. No, they were big sellers, too. Like, those were big artists. Those were at the top of the charts, along with these other men you're mentioning. So. It, it really doesn't even make sense to not include them when you consider that, when you consider that. Well, and this is, and I'm going to bring up, um, they also introduced Striper at this period, which mm-hmm. I find really, of course, important. And Striper was undoubtedly uh, coming in on the heels of Rez musically. But I also want to talk about, they make a, Striper was a, 80s hair metal band essentially um incredible musicians incredibly evangelistic in their lyrics Mm -hmm. you know the to hell with the devil they had the great (laughs) yeah that was like their big controversial record because to hell with the devil hell yeah yeah as a a curse word yes um so controversial uh they wore makeup they wore spandex so they were like i mean i remember being as a kid going to jimmy swaggart's uh camp meeting because that's how my family spent (laughs) summer vacations (laughs) um and he had his big anti-rock workshop yeah and he talked about how you could see striper's (laughs) genitals oh my god (laughs) through their spandex oh my god and so striper was really controversial in that way i do appreciate that in the documentary they deal with Yes. The attacks, particularly from Jimmy Swaggart um, on CCM. Possibly the most honest section of the film, just in terms of that that inner, you know, intra-conflict of the music in that conservative world. Yes. And what that looked like. Yes. Because they were, you know, there was clearly a lot of hurt still around that. Yeah. They talked about, like, Swaggart, you know, they were saved by watching Jimmy Swaggart on television. Yes. Only for him to demonize them as they publicly, just got more and more popular. On television. Yeah, yeah, publicly. Did G. Craig Lewis just like steal his whole totally. bit? Okay. Totally. Yeah. Because that's all I got from yeah. that was like, oh, truth about hip hop. Yeah. It's just, you know, just remixed. Remixed. <laughs> um, but I want to say about Striper, because Striper had this theatricality about their presentation. Mm-hmm. And, and granted, a lot of their, you know, comrades in... Um, secular music, we're doing that. So that's where I'm sure they drew that from. Mm-hmm. But I also want to say that for CCM, the only person who had done that prior to them was Sheila Walsh. Mm. And so I found it really, um, again, reductive that Sheila Walsh was not included as a woman who came to America from England who was incredibly demonized. We we just read an interview that she had done in 84, you know, where she would get grilled backstage by fans to make sure, you know, about her theology mm-hmm. and because she was using the devil's favorite colors in her light show. <laughs> and because she, you know, she talked about, you know, she wore a headband and a gold, you know, lame top for a year, a jacket, you know, in her early stage presentation. And 
she got so much heat for it, she took it off and put on something more American, and suddenly she was no longer questioned about being demonic. Yeah. And just <laughs> all of the cultural hoops that she jumped through, and she had, you know, smoke and lights and, you know, in a sense, a very dramatic, choreographed show. Yeah. She was the forerunner for that and so that there was no connection between those two things yeah also bothered me because i thought well striper really couldn't have come in at all they would have taken a lot more heat had sheila not taken that the heat that she took so that bothered me um you have a story about christian metal and having worked in the Christian bookstore. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, metal, Christian metal was such a thing in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, it was a huge, we had, I worked in a Christian bookstore uh, in my teens and we had an entire Christian metal section. Like, yeah. That's how much there was. Three huge rows of cassettes and CDs of Christian metal groups. And the covers were... <laughs> Disturbing. Um, on par with metal music covers. On par, totally. And that was part of the appeal. It yeah. was, you know, shocking and jolting and young people loved. So there was one by a group called Vengeance. And the, I remember the album was called Human Sacrifice. And it had a hand with a huge spike through it with blood pouring everywhere. And it was, of course, Jesus. Right. And I remember people would come, though, and just lamb blast us. <laughs> For having such violent imagery and these disturbing images, and we were selling it as Christian music. And I was like, well, it's Jesus's hand. <laughs> like, it's not a kid they pulled off the street. Like, and they sure love being that graphic when they're talking about it in their sermons on Sunday. But, scaring the shit out of all the children and making them feel guilted and just traumatized by his suffering on that cross with the thorns and the blood and the... You know, it, it was a regular occurrence for people to come in and just be gawk. quite aggra- <laughs> to gawk and then become aggressive uh, because they were outraged and disturbed. I mean, people were frequently angry that we had Amy Grant um, <laughs> just outraged because, you know, she'd sold her soul to the devil. You know, this has always been the kind of mythology. And so it's the documentary sort of touches on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sort of touches on that. And. Then it kind of... Am I leaving anything out from the 80s? Well, oh, just let's talk about more like flying through people and not, again, not really hearing much of their story. Like DeGarmo and Key, I think they mentioned, but not much. Petra? Did we talk about Petra? Did they did. talk about Petra? <laughs> they mentioned Petra. And Petra was really like in the, in the 80s. It was, you know, Amy, Sandy, Petra... Mm-hmm. Leslie Phillips. Leslie Phillips, by the way, Leslie Phillips, to me, was she was in the top three female artists of the yeah. first half of the 80s. Yeah. Not a word, not a mention. Of course, she famously left yeah. uh, Christian music and said that she disagreed with the entire concept of selling God uh, and selling Pat Answers. And her story was completely left out, yeah. uh, which really disappointed me because... I feel like we only got the happy ending people. The people that are still in it. And, yeah. Yeah. I guess this is, we really have to at this juncture, because um, this is where we get introduced to Kirk Franklin in the movie. We get introduced to DC Talk. Yeah. Well, I did mention Michael W. Smith 
at that point. Um, they talked about him and Amy and their relationship and, you know, just that, that partnership that they had as collaborators. Well, and I, I guess I have to say something about the Amy Michael thing, too, because the only other piece is that they were it was actually a, they were a triple threat. Because it was Amy, Michael, and her ex-husband, Gary. Mm -hmm. And it was the synergy of the three of them as writers and collaborators that I think really made that period so magical for Amy. And so that Gary, I know there's a lot of stuff there just in terms of (laughs) where he's landed and who he is today. And (laughs) But it's like, I don't get the harm in raising people's names since they threw so many other names at us. Right. What's the harm in at least saying this was an important ingredient in this art that we made together? Because Amy and Michael did not do that, just the two of them. Yeah. And so I was troubled by that through the whole film, not just about Amy and and Michael, just about all of it in general. I just thought, well, you're giving us a lot of information anyways that they assume, the makers of the film really assume a lot about who's watching it. Yeah. Because, and what they know. And what they know. And we're probably doing the same thing with this episode. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, but, no, you know, there there is a certain level of, if you knew nothing about this coming in, would you be able to follow along? And I don't know that most people could with that film. And very little of the actual music. Yeah, well, and that might have just been cost- Well, and I want to compare this, though, to there's a great independent film that we love, a documentary called Radical Harmonies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's about the world of women's music. When I first saw that film, I knew nothing about women's music, not Mm -hmm. a thing. But they gave incredible, like, 25-second snippets of Mm -hmm. these songs as they told the stories. And baby, I wanted every single record by the time I finished watching that documentary. Yeah. They hooked me with story and they hooked me with music. Yeah. And I feel like the makers of this film really missed that opportunity by because you can't tell me the people watching that film today who were watching because Lauren Daigle was in it or who were watching because whoever any of these other new people that were in it were know anything about the old music and so you missed an incredible opportunity to draw people in to something they've never discovered before yeah and so that really grieved me but we they when they move us into the 90s they're talking about grunge pop rock hip-hop the diversity that was allegedly happening you're breaking and becoming more so we get stephen curtis chapman we get dc talk and then eventually the newsboys yes um, I feel like passing mentions of Jars of Clay, Rebecca St. James, not a lot from them. And then oddly, they throw Kurt Franklin into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I want to say two things. Because what they don't tell you that happens in the 90s is that they, are, they, they, they don't tell you that the music becomes less life-centric mm-hmm. and more evangelism centered mm-hmm. they don't tell you that it becomes more fundamentalist yeah and they don't tell you anything that might have changed with the culture that was right. happening so they completely leave out the baker scandal which i harp on this in every conversation we have about how they tell these stories because 
the Baker scandal fundamentally shut down, was a huge part of shutting down the crossover era. The risk-taking. The risk-taking. And Christians decided that they were, the gatekeepers of CCM decided they were going to bring it all back Mm in-house. So Amy had just barely gotten through in 85 with Find a Way, uh, hitting the Billboard Top 40. Russ Taff was getting, just barely starting to have little glimmers of mainstream attention. And there had really been just, you know, a few success stories in that era. Yeah. Um, And they immediately, when the Baker scandal hit in 1987... And Jerry Falwell took over the PTL Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, CCM completely didn't about face. And that's why the messaging all changed. And it started not having the appeal outside of the church that it once had. Mm-hmm. And then we get all of these groups that we just mentioned. The, mm-hmm. You know, the DC talk, decent Christian talk. And so the film takes us into that story, but gives you none of that subtext. No. And but that's because Kirk- PTL wasn't mentioned at all. At all. As an important venue for the music, marketing the, platform, promotional platform. Yep. Really the only completely supportive organization um, for Christian rock at that time. So yes, Kirk gets dropped in the middle of this, which is odd because white people, to my knowledge, did not really catch on to Kirk until the back end of Stomp. Back end. Which is... Late 90s. Yeah. And so we get Kirk. I was a little puzzled by Kirk's drop in the story. Uh, Not his place in the story, but just where they put him in the story. Because he didn't have any um, coalescing in the CCM world at that time. Yeah. Um, That all happened way later. And, like, on that level, like, yeah, we, we they mention... Andre Crouch, and they talk about the, the you know, they, they, they use what, him as a way to talk about the racial segregation of the music. And I can't remember who said it, but they said, you know, if, if this world had been interested in integrating racially, they should have been done did it with Andre. Yes. Because he was the one who was really pushing the music forward, being inclusive of all these different genres and doing it incredibly well. And creating a multicultural experience, well, both with the music and with the performance and the audience of the music. And that's all we get of Andre. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, that was the blip that we got. And so, yeah, they kind of posited Kirk as like a second try, I guess, at it, which was really strange to me because it wasn't until Kirk and Toby Mac started doing things together in my brain that... Kirk kind of entered that CCM world and then kind of started giving him a little bit of play, kind of. <laughs> well, yeah, because I thought if we're doing, like, black artists in CCM, Andre, obviously. Andre brought us Danny Bell. Right. Who was the only black woman that really had any kind of success in CCM to speak of. And there was not a mention of her name. Yeah. And then in the 80s, we had um, Philip Bailey. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. You had um, Bob Bailey, who they won't talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Denise Williams. Denise Williams. You had, of course, BB and CC Winans. Right. And so CC's in the film, but not to talk about anything. Anything. <laughs> and they don't even really talk about the success of BB and CC on CCM radio, mm-hmm. which was an anomaly. Like yeah. that had never their kind of success. Danny Bell hadn't gotten that. Uh, Philip Bailey was the only other person, and, and Denise Williams, who had that kind of... And they had mainstream 
name power. Yeah. And so I thought it was just all odd that Kirk gets positioned as like the one, mm-hmm. much like they gave us Amy as the one. Yeah. And Kirk, I think, was incredibly honest. Yeah. I think he told the truth. Mm-hmm. I was happy he was there on that level. But I, it did bother me that there wasn't even, and maybe they reached out to her and maybe she chose not to respond, Sandra Crouch. Because to me, I thought, well, if you're going to give us Kirk, give us some connection to Andre. Can we get Sandra mm-hmm. speculating about Andre or about uh, Kirk? Mm-hmm. Can we get Sandra talking about what they experienced on the road in CCM? If we're, you know, doing that, we're telling this story in this film. And Kirk's singular story, because CC sure didn't say anything about it. No. So then they, you know, we get a lot of DC talk. We get a lot of DC talk and their history and how they clearly hate each other <laughs> now and how it all just kind of became really big and then it imploded or exploded and they all kind of went off and did their own thing and you get the newsboys, you get Toby Mac as a solo artist. Then they kind of just start talking about scandals a little bit, you know, and just the way, but even that was really truncated and didn't include everybody and didn't really dig too deep about what that looks like so we get like some divorce in the church stuff with sandy pat then that's the mention of sandy patty we get other than being shady about her her divorce michael english's divorce amy's divorce i just thought it was unfortunate that we didn't really get any talk of rust half the artist it was all just about you know his battle with alcoholism yeah there's like a passing kind of mention of toby mac's son and the drug overdose they assume we know all about it yeah they assume we know all about it which is weird weird. very weird weird. and to kind of connect it with the scandals was weird because i'm just like i don't know that that's a scam okay you know i guess they were just kind of you know talking about turbulence or hardship or having to overcome things in the public eye as ministers i don't know i I didn't really understand why those things were all a part of the same segment yet no mention of toby max artist jennifer knapp who was a major force in ccm in the late 90s and early 2000s who's now come out and has continued her career and uh no mention of her yeah no mention of her and no mention of any scandals Prior to the 90s, which I thought was really interesting. It was all just erased as if that was the first time they'd ever encountered those things. And the only one that really, I thought, gave the gravity of the consequences of those kinds of scandals was Amy. Right. Yeah. And that somebody at her stature by that time could still be toppled by something in that world. I think she did a really great job of communicating that. But there were certainly people who came before her that could have told more harrowing and damaging stories. Uh, And unfortunately, we did not get those stories (laughs) on the set of A Rose is Still a Rose. (laughs) (laughs) They did briefly kind of touch on the shifts to more praise and worship. And I was surprised at how much I enjoyed. They talked to Bill Gaither. Yes. And I was surprised at how much I enjoyed what Bill Gaither had to say. Who's Bill Gaither? You tell us who Bill Gaither is. I mean, I think that's important because people need to know Bill Gaither's like in his 80s. Yeah. yeah. And he was a Southern gospel uh, singer, songwriter, producer, arranger, performer at the helm of the Bill Gaither trio for many years. And now he is behind the huge homecoming enterprise where all the Southern gospel artists uh, from the days of yore um, tour together. 
um, and record. He created Gaither Music and records them and has given so many artists work for the last, really, 40, 35 yeah. years. And yeah. there's kind of a trajectory there because we don't get any Southern gospel representation in this film. Or mention. Or mention, which, you know, it was a thing prior to the Jesus music. So that, right. you know, makes sense to a degree. Um, you know, was was the traditional gospel music, especially for white people. But, you know, that trajectory of the artists that kind of age out of CCM, yes. a, a lot of times end up in that homecoming That's right. sphere. And so, you know, that was kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition. But he talks about praise and worship writers ripping from David by taking 15 to 20% of the Psalms and neglecting the other songs that say, God, where are you? I'm hurting. And I just thought that was so, yes. Yeah. And so if you want to hear more about our thoughts on praise <laughs> and worship music, be sure to check out the oh. previous episode, episode four. Because, <laughs> you know, it just, it just felt like total confirmation of what we said throughout that episode. Um, then they just fly through more two-second images of people sitting down and then them not talking to them <laughs> Yeah, from the 2000s. Yep. So we're getting Sixpence None the Richer, Switchfoot, Reliant K, uh, Jackie Velasquez, I think. Like, they show these people and we do not hear from them <laughs> again. I don't even oh. remember if Rachel Lampa was seated. I don't even remember <laughs> if we saw her, but another important person from that era. Yeah, yeah. They just kind of... Stacey Orico, anyone? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so She's weird. A woman. They don't care. So weird. So weird. But then we get like a shit ton about Michael W. Smith's worship. Okay. Album. <laughs> Here's where it all goes to hell. <laughs> Go for it. Keep going. I just had to say that. <laughs> so I want to talk about 9 11. <laughs> and I want to talk about that date in particular, because so many albums came out that day. And it's so interesting how each album has its own story. Like, <laughs> if it was a bomb, it was because of 9-11. If it was huge, it was because of 9-11. It's just like, no, can we not put such an emphasis on what also happened that day? Because clearly the albums were just going to do what they were going to do. Yeah. And like, yeah, if Mariah Carey had maybe bothered to promote Glitter, there'd probably be a different story around Glitter. But I need 9-11 to not be <laughs> the, reason. <laughs> the reason that that happened. Because Jay-Z's Blueprint album came out on the same day. Need I say more? And so, like, Michael W. Smith talks about worship coming out on 9-11. All of them talk about... The commercialism of the, you know, because at this point, you know, the, the, all the talk in the 80s was really about the industrialization of the music. And yes. then the 90s was really how far can we take that while simultaneously not doing a lot of the crossover stuff we were doing. Other than like Amy Grant with the baby babies. And we get no mention of Kathy Tricoli. And Everything that whole, changes. Yeah. We get yeah. nothing of, when they don't even mention, I don't remember, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I tried to be really cognizant. Michael's place in this world. Yeah. 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 And so I think we get like some album covers of people. Yeah. But there's not a lot of details there. And so, you know, they're talking about just how uninspiring it all becomes. You know, the industrialization of it. They talk about egos a lot and the egoism, especially with the DC Talk story. And so they posit 
this worship album as the answer to all of that (laughs) and as a getting back to what it was as a getting back to what it was in the 60s which weird to me well i remember when that album came out i had just moved here and it was everywhere everywhere And, like, I really honestly had stopped with Michael W. Smith after the big picture in 86. I was kind of done. Because I saw it all moving in a really uninteresting direction. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse to me. Because it was becoming more and more and more... So, when I'm going to say this the right way, Christian music is always Mm message-driven. Always. Mm -hmm. So, But it was becoming more and more, to me, created for the explicit purpose of reaching the average Christian listener. It was not stretching that listener. It was like, I'm writing this for you because I know you want to hear Pray For Me. I know you want to hear On That Level Place in This World. I know that you those are the songs you want to hear. That's the message you want from me. Mm-hmm. And so all of the the energy and innovation, I think that really was centered in his first three records. So when this record came out, and I saw the just worship. I just went, oh, God. Because I knew it was going to be like an entire album of that. And I tried to listen to that thing. Yeah. And I just went, who's doing this? And clearly, everybody in this town. Every No, everybody in the world. Because it was also huge in Columbus, Ohio, where I was from. It was just huge everywhere. Not what I needed. At, not what I needed. Yeah. It was not for me. And it was also, I feel like, the album that made this live worship experience what we've been chasing ever, ever since. Absolutely. Especially in the gospel world, in the black gospel world. Like, they have been trying to meet that album yep. <laughs> ever since, yep. to the detriment of everything else yep. everything else and so all the albums need to be live or sound like they're live they have to have these kinds of you know this connection and the... <sighs> could we come up with something else could we come up with something else in the immortal words of sissy houston let the bitch have it they they talk about hillsong united briefly like we get a brief briefly, kind of, I mention of that. Briefly. yeah i was kind of shocked because before worship we had all of those shout to the lord albums the, and, yeah. and you know all the stuff that you know kind of set the ron cannoli yeah yeah but again like is that ccm or is that i don't know because i'm not the one rewriting this story yeah what is so, what yeah what what is that i would have never considered any of this ccm i would not consider what michael w smith did with the worship album ccm but yeah. clearly that's all it is now yeah so okay but if that's what it is then that was already going on and you just happened to sell a whole lot more of it yeah but it was already going on anyways yeah. yes yeah. they mentioned delirious who i never listened to Chris Tomlin, they, they call him the most sung songwriter on the planet because Oof. his songs are sung pretty much every Sunday in so many churches around the globe. <sighs> let that let that sit with you all. And really, you know, what I noticed in that last half an hour, however much was left in the rest of the film, was just a focus less on the artists and way more on the songs and congregational singing. These artists having any kind of identity, yeah. them having any kind of, I don't love this word, but brand. Them having no 
I'm connected to them because of who they are or because of the imagery that they're bringing or the personality that they're bringing or, you know, I'm connecting to them as a person singing these songs. That's all stripped away. And it's just about creating songs that the most people can sing together. Yep. And we talked about all of this in the last episode with Maverick City Music. Like that has clearly become the focus of this music. And it's sad. One of the the things we really noticed in watching just is how different the people who were talking, giving interviews, how different the new singers talk versus the folks from the 60s to the 80s. It's almost like that reality of not having to have a personality, not having to be an artist with any kind of identity just makes them completely vacant as someone to talk to. I couldn't distinguish any of the new people like it's all just a blur so it's probably why we got nothing from like any of the other 90s early 2000s today artists other than the few that they showed because they probably said nothing yeah they probably said absolutely nothing just like their songs say absolutely nothing yeah yeah i mean it was that last like 20 minutes is just a blur to me i just who are these people i see their names but they all look alike yeah. They all sound alike. They're all saying the same things. Nothing. Yeah. They end with Lauren Daigle. And she, you know, just kind of talks about her place in it and whatever that means. It all just feels they like... They make her the, the descendant of Amy. Amy, yeah. Sure. And then they talk about Lecrae for like five seconds. And they talk about him as... Because they need him. They because need he's him. selling so much... Um, but they don't like him. They don't like him. And they talk about him facing all the same race stuff and all of the same not really fitting into anything that Kirk faced. And so it's like we get this weird trilogy of like it started with Andre, then it went to Kirk, and now Lecrae is like, you know. And Lecrae even says like the only person who's reached out is Kirk. Is Kirk, who's kind of helped me navigate the weirdness of this all. We got no, which, okay, so a few, there's some exclusions. Yeah, big we, exclusions. Well, not that we haven't already mentioned, like, a million yeah, exclusions. Yeah, but there were even more, there yeah. Were, uh, the big major one, and I say this, I was not a fan of this person. I did not like this person. <laughs> but I cannot deny that they were a huge cultural force Yeah. in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And that was Carmen. Yeah. And that he gets, May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. And that he only gets an odd shot after the credits. A blooper. Like a weird yeah, outtake. Like they got some home video or something from someone's old videotapes and just kind of tacked on like five seconds to the end of the movie. It was weird. Yeah. And they assumed that we know who and he was. And they assumed we knew who he was. We did. And we went, oh, there's Carmen. <laughs> and I know that there was always, um, I mean, even the the editor of Contemporary Christian Music wrote editorials, even every time they featured him about the wrestle of <laughs> even including Carmen yeah. in the magazine at the time. Yeah. Because there was a piece of it that was doing what exactly what I said Michael W. Smith was doing. It was a it was a it felt, it appeared to be cash grabby kind of shtick. It was a it was a gim- it was I, gimmick. Yeah. I know Christians will pay a million bucks to see me say this. Yeah. And that's what his entire career was. It was a bunch of tropes and cliches that he did in like Las Vegas production style. Mm-hmm. And they ate it 
up. And he, he made movies and he had yeah. big yeah, yeah. He was huge. And so that that doesn't even get a mention is weird to me given how much money they made off of him. Yeah. Point of Grace, anyone? Yeah. Another huge group from the nineties. Loved their harmonies. Big sellers. They were big just everywhere. Good Saw them Christian all the time. Girls yeah. Next door. Yeah. Huge sellers, of course, because they love that. Mm-hmm. No, not mentioned. Audio Adrenaline. Yeah, that was weird. And as we said earlier, um, BB and CC. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie Velasquez and Nicole Mullen. While we're talking about race. Yeah. Who also brought with her an interracial marriage, which yeah. they'd never had to deal with, with another, you know, really important CCM artist. They were, she was married at the time to David Mullen. Mm-hmm. They were a power couple. I mean, they were incre- not just for their own music, but songwriters for other people. Nicole Mullen, I'm sure, could have told them a thing or two about race and being a woman yeah. in that business. They sat her down. We saw that. Yeah. We got nothing. Yeah. Maybe she gave them nothing. I Maybe don't know. Maybe she gave them nothing. I know the big exclusion for you, especially as they were talking about the early years, was Randy Stonehill. And yeah, I mean, just my, my, probably my, him and Russ Taff, just my favorite male vocalist writers from that period. And that Randy Stonehill, who was, you know, right there alongside Larry Norman from mm-hmm. 1972 on, got not a mention. Yeah. And he's still touring, still making thoughtful, great music. Was viable commercially in the 80s uh, and 90s. It was a CCM favorite into the 2000s on radio. Had radio hit. Yeah. Hits. What was that about? They didn't talk about any of the festivals. None of the festivals. Other than Expo 72. But after that. Well, there was, I mean, Creation, Fishnet, um, the Jesus Festival, Cornerstone, which Resband produced. You know, Jesus People USA produced for, gosh, I think... 25 years i could be wrong on that don't quote me but it was decades yeah what in the world that was a huge piece of how particularly the more progressive music spread was through the festivals because these people weren't all getting airplay these people all weren't getting airtime on christian television but they'd hit the festival that's how i first saw dc talk was at the uh, jesus 88 festival Mm. in orlando florida and their album wasn't even out yet but I tell you what, everybody was looking for it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so to not talk about festivals as a huge driver in the culture, just, I don't know if they didn't think about these things. I don't know if, I don't understand, I don't understand a lot of how this narrative is getting crafted. Yeah. They they didn't talk at all about all of the secular art, like the, the, the cross-pollination, the secular yeah. artists that were coming in to the CCM world, especially in the 80s. Cliff Richard... Barbara Mandrell, Donna Summer, Donna Summer, Bob Dylan, Bonnie Bramlett, Maria Moldar, BJ Thomas, Joe English, from Philip from, Bailey, yes, Al Green, Rick we got Kua, no Al Green, who Rick Kua, who was in the film, they didn't even mention the fact that he came from the Outlaws. Yeah, I mean, so it was just odd to me. I mean, that he was part of that whole group that that came over. Yeah, it's just weird to me. Yeah. They did not mention Bobby Jones. And yes, Bobby Jones and New Life, if you want to talk about black artists in CCM in the 80s, they were 
definitely the most commercially viable to me definitely the group that was excluded from christian radio and should have been right up on in ccm radio in the 80s that those their 82 83 84 records were just incredible produced by tony brown the freaking country you know reba mcintyre rumor has it record Mm -hmm. tony brown and they were completely locked out of christian radio and so that would have been a story they didn't mention margaret becker no Margaret Becker, major woman, singer-songwriter, came in on the heels of, uh, as Leslie Phillips was leaving, Margaret was coming in. Huge, huge seller, sold millions of records between the 80s and 2000s. And Avalon. I was really shocked that there was no mention of Avalon. Same thing, like huge. They were everywhere. Oh, we didn't say anointed. When we were talking about all the black yes. CCM artists, like if you're going to talk to you know anyone why kirk you could have yeah you could have talked to anointed because that was another opportunity and they did have some success in ccm major success in ccm toured with you know recorded with michael w smith i believe toured with him um and now they are the worship leaders at freaking lakewood yeah you know steven daedra i mean so it's not like they've disappeared disappeared from view i mean they've they're a major force in in a sense, the sound of what it is today. Yeah. And so, to yeah, it's weird. Yeah. And similar sound, Crystal Lewis. No conversation with Crystal Lewis. No Crystal Lewis. And yeah. I don't know how you do that. She was, I mean, really uh, part of Frontline Records, which also got no mention, no love. And they were like the central place for Christian metal uh, and uh, hip-hop. Yeah, eventually hip-hop. If you're going to talk to Lecrae, why not set the foundation for how him and Reach Records and Cross Movement, like how those labels could become a thing because of Frontline. And if Lecrae thinks he went through it, I want to know how Dynamic Twins, ETW, um, Michael Peace, you know, Mike E, um, um, Gospel Gangsters, I want to know what they went through. Because I promise you it was 20 times worse. Right. They didn't talk to Grits, (laughs) who could have also been someone to talk to before Lecrae. Out of Eden out of eden yeah they didn't talk to like any of the latino oh we got nothing from any of the latino artists nope the two things that really felt like a cop-out with the whole film one was they didn't they glossed over what happened in the 2000s to today because they didn't want to admit anything or just set what happened in the christian industry um against the backdrop of what was happening in the greater music industry as a whole which was the digital age happened napster happened how did this (laughs) itunes happen how did all of these things affect scale uh budgets like we said the kinds of risk taking that might happen or you know they might have been inclined to take had those things not happened like those were real things that affected the number of artists the consolidation of the labels the 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 people behind the industry, we got like no conversations with execs or managers from that time and nope. what the budgets were like before versus later. Like, you know, just a complete gloss over of the hardship of that and the repercussions of that and why it is what it is today. But they don't want to admit that there's any difference. So, right. you know, I was disappointed in that. And I was also, I don't know that I expected it. They clearly were trying to make as apolitical as a film as possible. But... You know, just no mention at all of the political alliance that the music, along with the church, made with the right, with the right wing. The requirement of the artists 
to, to be right wing. To be right wing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And you know that there have been. Uh, I guess I don't understand as a storyteller. I don't understand the harm in talking about people who chose to believe differently mm-hmm. in the end or who chose to move on, who chose to, who did not have happy endings, I don't understand why we wouldn't get, I mean, Ray Boltz was a major, major CCM artist in the 80s and 90s, came out of the closet, and it's like he never existed. It's like he never happened. As we said before, Jennifer Knapp, Marsha Stevens Pino, the men in CCM who took their own lives, rumored because of sexuality, you know, that those things don't even get a mention. How did AIDS affect CCM? (laughs) They weren't going to touch that with the And they weren't going to touch yeah. that. And I guess, to me, though, it makes it look like this world is so far removed from, from reality. the rest of society. Yeah. Which we now know it really, yeah, really... Yeah, they worked really hard to do that. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't used to be that way. And if you're going to tell the story yeah. as it was... Yeah. Yeah. Because AIDS did affect this business. Yeah. And, you know, there are multiple CCM artists who took their lives because they could not navigate being gay in that world. And those stories are not hard to find. You just have to be interested in hearing them. They talk to no radio people. You know, I I would have been interested just to hear about the, 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 much like we got in Radical Harmonies, the creation of all of the things for themselves. And so, yeah, the festivals. Yeah, radio. Yeah, like all of the things that had to be grown and become a thing to sustain the industry for the decades that it was doing what it was doing. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, we just basically said all the things that we wish the film was. So I guess that speaks to what the outlaw version of telling the story might look like. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think the outlaw version to me really is having a presence in the film that says, this was a major part of my life for 20 years or however long. And I moved beyond it. Yeah. I now believe this, or I am now here, or I am. It is this commitment to staying the same in core value or a belief system that I don't think is really designed to be held for that long. I think it's something you pass through and you move beyond. That's my value. But I know that there are people who also subscribe to that that came from that world. And so that there's no place for any of them. Um, To me, the outlaw version would be saying just that. It would be Sam Phillips. It would be Leslie Phillips. And if you're going to include all of these pro-Trump people or people who have become pro-Trump over their lifetime, even if they aren't talking about that in the film okay sure where are the interfaith artists are they a part of this where are the lgbt artists that are that either came out and are still figuring out how to include faith in their music or the new ones like similar if you're going to include a lauren daigle where's similar who has consistently topped the itunes chart for like the since the pandemic started where are the Christian Marxist artists? <laughs> well, and also, if you're going to have those people, if you're going to have a John Cooper, then why don't you have a Nicole Nordeman? Right. Right. Yeah. Even even just lefties, you know, yeah. like progressive, you know, liberal Christians. Where are they? Yeah. And I'm not, we're not identifying Nicole Nordeman. I have no idea. Any of those her. things. Yeah. But we, I, I am saying that she has, you know, been affirming of LGBT people. Yeah. She was, you know, very... Um, outspoken uh, um, 
about you know immigration and and had great things to say uh, and presented many different ways to be a Christian and believe in a world that was requiring other things. And so I just feel like even if you're passively having like a John Cooper in that film, you have to have somebody else like they did have Glenn Kaiser, but he can't be the only one because there were a whole lot more identifiable Trumpers in that film than identifiable Christian leftists. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we watched the movie so you don't have to. (laughs) If you want to watch it, you can... You know, get it wherever you rent and buy movies digitally. I think they put it on DVD and Blu-ray as well. So, you know, check it out. It'll it'll probably be streaming soon, someday. I don't know what deals they've worked out. Um, Other filmmakers, if you're (laughs) interested, I'd love to consult on a project like this. Because this is, like, my world. This is my job. And uh, so I'd love to be a part of helping develop a narrative for a film like this. Because... As you have heard throughout our conversation, like there are many, many other sides to the story and many, many other stories to be told. And people are willing to tell their stories. You can go by my substack, God's Music is My Life, and read some of these stories that I've been collecting through the years uh, because they matter. Yeah. And there's just so much more to tell. And one film, one film period, isn't going to do it. No. It doesn't excuse a lot of the faults that this film could have righted by, you know, just being a little bit more intentional about around a lot. But like we said, you know, if you were really going to tell some kind of comprehensive, all-inclusive story of a lot of this stuff, it would have to either be a miniseries or there just need to be more stories, I guess. And again, it was not as bad as I thought it was going and to be. And it was not as bad as I thought it was going to be either. So there you go. Where can people find you? Twitter. Uh, Instagram uh, at Tim Dillinger and God's Music Is My Life. Substack.com. And you can find me, Ray, uh, at Ray Curenton on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll be digging in the next episode a little deeper into Andre Crouch. And yeah, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make this part two, and off we go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for listening.